Amen. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We began a series a couple of weeks ago on the seven letters to the, the letters to the seven churches. There are seven letters, one to each church. And we spent the last couple of weeks in chapter 1 of Revelation and some setting the stage uh, historically for the, the setting in which these letters were, were uh, written. We know that uh, uh, the, the origin of this information, John, the Apostle John, as an older man, was uh, uh, exiled to the island of Patmos for about 18 months. We don't know exactly how long, but we think it was about 18 months. We know that he went in 93, AD 93, he was uh, exiled to the island uh, in that year, and then he was released in the uh, then the following year, ninety four. So it was. There's um, depending on the times of year, which we don't know. We uh, we estimate that he spent about eighteen months on the island of Patmos, and he stayed there, uh, exiled by the emperor Domitian, Roman emperor Domitian, until his death in ninety four A.D. And uh, uh, so, while he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, the Bible tells us Jesus appears to John, but he doesn't appear to John as the good shepherd. He doesn't appear to John with his hands outstretched and or holding a lamb like you see in some of the pictures and and uh, and that kind of stuff. He appears as the conqueror. He has eyes that are flames of fire. His hair is white like wool. His feet were burning like they were brass in a fire. He's dressed for action, and there's a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. And Jesus identifies uh, some of the things about what he's going to do he says write these things that you see and uh, put them in a book which of course he did and um, uh, and present these letters to the seven churches present the book and the letters to each of the seven churches now the implication is each of the churches saw what was said not only to them but to the other churches as well um, as I said we know that uh, John was released from the island in 94 now just using a little bit of common sense, and I know that's a stretch for a lot of Christians, but nevertheless, um, if God knows, and he does, how long John's going to be exiled on the island? And if he's got a message that he wants to deliver to the churches, it would stand to reason or seem to make sense, wouldn't it, that God would work this thing in such a way so that John would have time along with his, his helper. The, there's some evidence pretty solid evidence that there was somebody that was with John on the island of Patmos as his slave, a man by the name of Prochorus. He was one of the original seven deacons in Acts chapter 6 in the church at Jerusalem. And he was there. John was a very old man. He was probably in his mid-90s, early to mid-90s at the time that he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And so Prochorus was with him, chose to go with him in exile so he could help take care of him. So you could well understand that, and, and there, there uh, are other uh, historical evidences that it, during the time that John was there, he got people saved on the island. He started a church on the island. Uh, he had, uh, as a political prisoner, he was free. He wasn't in some kind of labor camp or anything like that. He was free to wander and roam on his own. The idea that the Romans had was, since the island was so desolate and uh, so sparse, there wasn't much uh, food source. No towns, no, no grocery stores where you could go buy food or anything like that. And so many of the people, after being there for a period of time, would starve to death. And certainly you would expect John, as an aged man like that, to, uh, to be weaker uh, physically than, than some of the other younger prisoners would be. So um, perhaps Caesar didn't expect him to last long, but he outlasted Caesar. And so um, uh, it would make sense that if Jesus knows... How long John's going to be there? He knows when Domitian is going to be, uh, when his life is going to end and when the next seizure is going to come along and the next seizure is going to, to release John. Wouldn't it make sense to, to work this thing out so that the book or the letters and the letters get to the churches just, to, just as quickly as John gets off the island? To do otherwise, I mean, it wouldn't make sense for God to give the, the, uh, uh, the revelation to John the day before he's exiled from the island and then spend six months copying it down. Do you see my point? So we have to assume that this, uh, depending on the times of year, we have to assume that the letters, or at least I assume, that the letters to the churches, what we know of as the book of Revelation, 
was delivered to these seven churches in either 94, maybe early uh, 95 A.D. Now, the reason that that's important to me is because it helps us identify who some of the people that these letters are addressed to really were. In, in uh, um, the first letter, in Revelation chapter 2, is to the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the city that John had relocated to. And just before the uh, destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., John saw what was going on. He was the last uh, remaining apostle. It certainly was at this time. We don't know about the, the dates of some of the other deaths of the apostles, so we don't know if, if, uh, if many of those, any of those were alive to see the destruction of the temple besides John or not. We don't know. But um, uh, John saw what was coming politically and the Jews revolting against Rome and, and so forth. So he left Jerusalem, and uh, there's, uh, again, pretty good historical evidence that he brought the mother of, of Jesus, married the mother of Jesus with him, and they relocated to Ephesus. Now, she'd be very old, and uh, we don't know how long that she lived there in Ephesus, but there's a, uh, a ruin of a residence there in, uh, in the, uh, the city of Ephesus today that uh, is identified as Mary's home, and there are other historical evidences as well. And um, uh, so John relocated with Mary, the mother of Jesus, to the city of Ephesus. He lived outside the city, lived on the hillside overlooking the city. And so he was removed from much of the, the hustle and bustle of the town and, and a lot of the political intrigue and paganism and so forth. But uh, nevertheless, he was, at the time of his exile in 93 AD, he was the last remaining apostle of the original 12, I mean. The last remaining of the original 12 apostles. And he was the most famous Christian on the face of the earth. Mary has already departed and gone to be with Jesus. But, um, but John was known as the spiritual father, basically the spiritual father of Christianity. And uh, he was an overseer of the seven churches in Asia. Asia is what we know of as modern-day Turkey. And as we said before, there's a road that connects all of these seven churches. So if you were going to, to Asia, you would uh, get off the ship at Ephesus and if you just walk the road, you'd walk the circle of these seven churches that are named in, uh, in Revelation. Uh, Ephesus was certainly the most famous of the, the cities and the churches. It was the mega church of the day. Peter had preached there. Paul had started the church. Apollos had preached there. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila were a big part of the church. There were other uh, famous teachers and ministers that had, uh, that had been there at one time. We don't know exactly what the timing is, but at one time Ephesus was known to have about 10% of its population that, that became Christian. We don't know if that was the case. Uh, uh, we believe that it was the case before Paul died, but we weren't exactly sure, which would make the church a population of about twenty-five to 50,000 people in that city. It was significant enough to where the city was called a Christian city. That doesn't mean everybody was saved, obviously. Only 10% were. But it was significant in the fact that it was the megachurch of the day. If, uh, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to be somebody in Christianity, you had to be recognized by Ephesus. And so um, this is the, the, the situation of the church. They're under great persecution, under Domitian. There are, in the city of Ephesus, there are two great halls. One was the Hall of Nero. Nero was the Caesar that uh, crucified Peter and Paul, or crucified Peter upside down and beheaded Paul as a Roman citizen. And um, during Nero's reign, he had a temple built to himself uh, that was called the Hall of Nero in Ephesus. And then when Domitian came along, he had a temple built to himself. And so there were parts of the, whenever you went by one of these temples, you were supposed to offer incense and, and um, make a little sacrifice to the gods and so forth. So there were parts of the city that Christians, streets that they didn't walk down because if they, failed to offer a sacrifice or incense at these temples, then, they, then an accusation could be brought against them. So it was kind of a, a jigsaw puzzle route that many Christians had to walk to, to get away from or stay away from certain places. But even then, uh, they could be called into question whether or not they would uh, um, present their sacrifices to these Caesars and, and so forth. So it was a, it was a very uh, serious situation 
But the church was, uh, was considered to be the church of churches. Well, let's pick up in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. You remember, of course, how the church at Ephesus started. Paul goes and gets a small group of people saved and then uh, uh, begins to uh, have miracles. He, uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 19 says that he spent two years in the school of Tyrannus disputing daily, preaching the word every day. It, uh, it was a Bible school of some type, and the Bible says that all of Asia, meaning these seven churches, heard the word of the Lord during those two-year period. In other words, what that means is Paul had a Bible school that he would preach every day. Now, had, having a little bit of an understanding about the culture helps a little bit, uh, uh, helps to understand how things worked. In that part of the world, the, the work day was divided up into sections. People would get up early in the morning, they'd work till about 11 o'clock, and then they'd take a break. Kind of like the um, uh, Mexican siesta. It would, uh, that break would last till about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And then they'd work from 4 o'clock till 8 or 9 o'clock at night. So their work day was separated into two, two distinct parts. There are historical documents that say, writers that, that tell us that at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, there were more people asleep in Ephesus than at 1 o'clock in the morning. And so this was a, a break in the middle of the day. And so Paul, as evidenced, by many things would, uh, even the Bible tells us this, Paul said that he worked with his own hands so that he wouldn't be chargeable unto any. What that means is Paul didn't want to be influenced by anybody's support, so he'd work with his own hands. He wanted to be free to preach the word of God, free from the, the influence or the, the strings that somebody might try to attach to him by helping him out financially. So he'd work making tents in the morning, and then during that break in the middle of the day, that's when he'd preach in the school of Tyrannus, which the Bible says was right next to, uh, to the synagogue. And so he stayed there for two years in the, in the school of Tyrannus preaching. He says in Acts chapter 30 that he preached for three years. So we know his ministry in Ephesus was a three-year period, maybe three, maybe three and a half years when you total everything up. Paul had to leave under, because of the great riot, because of the persecution, and um, uh, but the but the city of Ephesus, as I said, the church at Ephesus was known as the church. It had everybody. Now think about if uh, if Mary, if John the apostle, last remaining apostle, and Mary the mother of Jesus are part of this church. Think about getting up and preaching to the crowds and telling people about Jesus with Mary sitting there on the front row. You better have your facts right. And so it was a it was a uh, it became a place. Where, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I really don't want to get, get into this quite yet. But let me just say this. There was an opportunity or the potential for a lot of spiritual competition. It was the church of the day. It was the mega church of mega churches. So here's the letter. Chapter 2, verse 1. Under the angel of the church, this is Jesus speaking. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. The word angel is the word messenger. Now, there are two possibilities for this, and that is that every church has an angel, heavenly angel, spirit being, or this, uh, this angel, this messenger that's being spoken of is somebody that's not a spirit being or a heavenly spirit being, but it's rather a man here on the earth. Now, it's not uncommon at all for the word messenger, the same word angel, messenger, to be used in speaking of human beings. It's talking about the pastor of the church. That's what it means when it's talking about the angels of the churches here. Now, that does not mean churches don't have angels. I happen to know that ours does. I assume that's the case for every other church. But think about this. Why would Jesus need to tell John to give an angel, a heavenly being, a message? That wouldn't make sense. That's not the order of things. John wouldn't be the one to direct the angels of the church of these seven churches, if they're angels in the sense of being from heaven and, and like we think of the word angels being used. No, it's talking about the messengers of the church, which tells us that Jesus has a um, protocol and a system for getting letters or getting messages to the churches. And those that protocol, that system, is to go through the pastors and not the laymen. Notice it's not written to the committee, the pastoral committee, or the board of deacons, or the elders, it's written to one person. 
unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Now, the first thing Jesus says is, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. The word holdeth, we've talked about that before. It means to hold tightly in a grip, but it also means to exercise control over. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Seven golden candlesticks were identified in chapter 1. The end of chapter 1 is the seven churches, the lampstands of the seven churches. The seven stars are identified as the pastors of these churches. Now, here's a message that we can get. I don't know if it was a message to Ephesus or not. It would certainly be applicable. But, but I'm not saying that this is what Jesus is trying to convey. But it's something for us to see, and that is, if Ephesus has a tendency, and the pastor of the church at Ephesus had a tendency to think, we are the church of churches. I mean, we're the pattern for everybody else. Jesus doesn't single out the mega church as having any greater place with him than the other churches. And some of these other churches in the, the different cities are very small. Very small. So the first thing Jesus says is, I'm in the midst of all the churches. Not just yours. No need to get big-headed about your church. I'm in the midst of all the churches in the same way, and I control all the pastors equally. Verse 2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. The Greek, is, um, the Greek construction is a little bit different than the English. It literally is, I know the works of you. I know the labors of you. And I know the patience of you. And the emphasis is, is on the you. Now, where it says Jesus speaks and says, I know these things, the word know is from firsthand observation. He says, I'm walking in the midst of the churches. I know firsthand from observation and inspection. I know the works of you. I know the labors of you. And I know the patience of you. We could stop and talk about these words and what they mean and, and so forth. But the important thing is this. You need to realize that in each of these seven letters, there are certain things that are common. One of the things that's in common of all seven letters is Jesus says, I know the works of you. I know the works of you. Why is that? Because Jesus expects each church to be a working church. He expects each church to be active in the things of God. One word I do want to point out is the word patience. I know the patience of you. He uses this word again. Um, well, let me read verses 2 and 3, and then I'll make my comments. I know the works of you. I know the labors of you. I know the patience of you and how you cannot bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them. The word tried means to put them to the test, to judge them, to inspect them thoroughly. You have tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. You have mourned, thou hast mourned, and hast patience. Here's the same word, patience, again. And for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. So he commends them for their works. And now what works does he commend them for? He commends them for trying false doctrine, false apostles. In other words, he's saying one of the things, and Jesus, this is the pattern Jesus uses with all the churches as well, and that is he always compliments them before he corrects them. And the thing that he compliments them on is he says, I know you're strong in doctrine. You've held fast to good, strong doctrine. You've tried them that are false apostles. You've found that they're liars. He didn't say, I know they mean well, but they're just in error. You found those that are teaching error and found them to be liars. Now, the word patience, I mentioned that before. Let me me tell you what the word patience means. The word patience really should be better translated endurance. Because it means this. It means to be under a heavy burden and not be moved. When it's used in a military sense, it means troops that hold their ground no matter how fierce the fighting gets or what the enemy throws at them. Endurance, this patience, as it's translated in other places in the New Testament, was considered by the early church to be the queen of the spiritual characteristics, the queen of the fruit of the Spirit. Because if you could develop this Stick to it no matter how fierce the fighting gets. You can do anything. I think we need a little bit of dose of that in our modern day church. Most people are ready to give up when they find out the enemy's coming. Not these folks. And that's what Jesus commends them for. He said, I know the works of you. I know the labors of you. The word labors really means wearisome toll. It means the hard work that you've done. 
and I know the patience of you, how you cannot bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast, and hast patience, endurance, and for my name's sake has labored and hast not fainted. Now, let me ask you this. Why would doctrine be such a big deal for the church at Ephesus? Turn back with me to, to uh, Acts chapter 20. I want you to see something here, folks. Acts chapter 20 tells us about when Paul was meeting with the elders at Ephesus and what he thought was going to be the last time because of the things that were ahead of him. This is when he was impressed in his spirit to go to to Jerusalem. And that when he got to Jerusalem, they were going to take him captive and put him in prison. God warned him ahead of time about that, and he even says so that he goes bound in the spirit into Jerusalem. Well, he thought that was going to be his end. It wasn't. We know that he was uh, held captive in Jerusalem from 60 to 62 A.D. So that would be 8 to 10 years after he starts the church in in, uh, Ephesus. And during those two years, he writes the letter to the Ephesians while he's in prison. Now, notice what he says even before he was ever taken captive, before he went to prison. This would be a couple of years, maybe three or four years, perhaps, five at the, at the outside maybe, uh, from the time that he spent in Ephesus. And he's talking to them. Now, the reason he has to meet these elders, he calls to meet them outside of town because he couldn't go back into town. He was under such persecution. And remember, he had to leave town because of the riot. And uh, he was persuaded not only by some of the Christians but by some of the town leaders, uh, officials, that if he went into the stadium where the, the crowd was crying out, great is Diana of the Ephesians and so forth, they were afraid that he'd be pulled in part, pulled in two, torn apart. So he's under, under great persecution. Uh, if you had to ask Paul at the end, toward the end of his ministry, what was your most effective church? What's the most effective ministry work you did in planting churches? Without a question, he'd say Ephesus. No doubt about it. Nothing else even comes close. Now, Paul said of his time at Ephesus, he said, a great door is opened unto me and effectual, and there are many adversaries. He says in writing to Timothy that he fought wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, since Acts chapter 19 doesn't tell us about literally going into the stadium and fighting lions and tigers, we have to assume that that's an illustration that he's used because that's part of the Roman games that are taking place in the stadium in Ephesus. The gladiators would get in there and they'd fight lions and tigers and, and whatever else they had. I don't know what beast means, but you, you know, use your own imagination on that. But Paul talks about the, uh, the persecution and the opposition that he received as being fighting wild beasts. So when Paul is, uh, is talking to the elders, he can't meet with them in the city. He, he can't even go into town. We know that the Jews were against him in Ephesus. We know that the, um, uh, the, the silversmiths union, trade union, was against him because people had turned away from buying the little statues of Diana and so forth. And by the way, let me, let me make this comment too. I'm not sure if I told you this before. How many of you have seen pictures of the Parthenon in Athens? Some of you may have visited, but everybody's pretty much seen the picture of the thing standing on the hill with the columns and the, the big facade, and that's about all that's left other than the outside of the outline of the building, stone outline of the building. But we can all tell from the, the angle of the pictures and stuff, that's a big place, right? The Temple of Diana was four times the size of the Parthenon. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, And there are several writers of that day who, having witnessed all the seven wonders of the world at that time, the ancient world, said that it was the most beautiful of them all. So Diana of the Ephesians is a big, big deal. So when the trade, the silversmith, the trade union was against Paul because so many people are getting saved and he's cutting into their business and so forth, it was a huge, huge citywide issue. And it became uh, known and proclaimed throughout that part of the world as far as Christianity and what was taking place there in the city. So in Acts chapter 20, forgive me for giving you details about this, but I find it interesting. I hope you do too. Acts chapter 20, if not, continue your nap. Um, In Acts chapter 20, 
Notice that Paul said, we'll start in verse 17. It says, and from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, you know that from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying of weight of the Jews. And how I held, kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he, um, he talks about going into the, to, to Jerusalem, how the Holy Ghost leading him to Jerusalem and so forth. Skip down with me to um, verse 26. He says, Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock of God, or the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Paul's uh, pattern was he'd go to uh, a certain city, he'd preach the gospel, he'd get people saved, and then after a period of anywhere from a few weeks, like in Thessalonica, to uh, the, the longest he was any place was three and a half years, three to three and a half years in Ephesus. He would select elders to leave in charge of the churches. But now, you know as well as I do that if somebody's only been saved for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, maybe a couple of months, they're not in position to be called to the ministry yet. Paul's the one that said, writing to Timothy, don't pick novices, don't pick newcomers, don't pick young people, young in the Lord, to put them in ministry positions because they could get lifted up in pride and then mess things up. So how in the world, and you could well understand this is the care of all the churches that Paul is having to deal with when he leaves town. He's having to go where God tells him to go. But he's leaving these churches in the hands of people that aren't equipped. The exception to that is Ephesus. Because he was there for three and a half years teaching daily. He's got a Bible school going that was it for at least two of those three years. Three to three and a half years. So he's been able to raise up ministers in Ephesus more so than anybody else. And he identifies that these people have been proven to be called by the Holy Ghost to oversee the church. So the church at Ephesus, when he leaves it, is in better shape spiritually than any church he's ever established. And notice what he warns them about. He says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. In other words, he says, two things are going to happen when I leave. And I know this just as much as I know my name. He said, people are going to come in from the outside teaching wrong doctrine. And it'll rip the church apart. The second thing that's going to happen is there are going to be people that come from up within the church, maybe even some of you here, that are going to try to draw disciples away from themselves. In other words, and folks, this was the way Ephesus worked. Ephesus had so many temples and so many philosophies and so many different ideas that Ephesus was the place where anybody could introduce anything new. It was a very rich city. The Temple of Diana was a place that, that uh, in effect, started its own bank because of the exchange of money and so forth that would take place for the benefit of the, of the, the goddess Diana. And so it was a very wealthy city. People would come in with con men plans by teaching different ideas and philosophies and so forth. And Paul said, this is going to happen in the church. This is going to happen in the church. In other words, he's warning them. He says, you better make sure you're strong on doctrine to keep the wrong things out. Now, that's what Jesus is commending them for. He's commending them because he knows their works he knows they've tried the false apostles and he found them liars. They're strong in doctrine. Turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me show you something else. 
where it says, Under the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. You know who the angel is? You know who the pastor of the church at Ephesus is? Timothy. We know that Timothy was beaten to death by a mob in a, in a pagan parade. He goes out and tries to stop him from carrying the idols and stuff like that in the middle of the parade. And they kill him. They pull him apart and beat him to death right there on the street corner in 97 A.D. So that would be a couple of years after he receives this letter. He was age 80. Notice what Paul said to Timothy. Chapter 1. I'm just going to pull out a couple of verses here. There's a lot more that we could talk about. But I'm just going to pull out a couple of verses here and save some time. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia. That thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. What is the first thing Paul say? What is the first thing Paul remind Timothy of? Remember that I told you that I wanted you to stay at Ephesus to counteract false doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, out of a, and of a good conscience and a faith unfeigned from which some having swerved have turned aside into vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, false doctrine, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. Look with me over to chapter 4. Verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We look at that and think about latter days being our days. Paul is writing to Timothy about the same thing in his day. So if this is going to be the case, if this is what he's warning Timothy about what's coming, the Spirit speaketh expressly, specifically says, in other words, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. What's the answer or the cure for that? Right doctrine. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. He's in Ephesus. And he says, now, Timothy, this is going to happen where you are. I don't think it's exclusive to Ephesus, meaning it's not going to be this case other places or in other times. But it would certainly include the place where Timothy is. Skip down with me to verse 6. Talking about if thou put the, uh, the brethren to remembrance of good doctrine, of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, Nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and old wives' fables. This is the kind of stuff that was happening in Ephesus. Somebody would come up with a new doctrine, new revelation, new twist on things. Because after all, they didn't have the Bible like we do in, in uh, a recognized or accepted canon of Scripture. All they had were certain letters. All they had were the teachings that people had received from other ministers... In this case, Timothy received from Paul and whatever the Holy Ghost would reveal to them. And there was new revelation that was coming out as, as given and uh, um, provided by the Holy Spirit. But you can also recognize that that was a, uh, a very fertile ground for somebody coming up with their own idea about anything and everything. And so what they had to do was really, 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 really focus on right doctrine, which they did. Refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Look with me to verse, uh, look at verse 12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Now when Paul says, let no man despise thy youth, write to Timothy, how old do you think Timothy is? He's in his mid-40s. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, which with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear unto all. Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. 
Look with me over to Second Timothy chapter one. This was written. First uh, Timothy chapter. First uh, Timothy, the letter to First Timothy, was written in about sixty-two. The second letter written to Timothy was right at the end of Paul's life, which was about sixty-five, maybe sixty-six. Notice in Second Timothy chapter one, verse thirteen, Paul says, "Hold fast the form of sound words." which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Sound words means, well, let me read this to you from another translation. Possess and keep the pattern of the doctrine of health and well-being, which you've heard of me. Chapter 2, verse 15. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Folks, if if the word of truth can be rightly divided... And that means it can be wrongly divided. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase more unto ungodliness. And the word will eat as doth a canker of whom, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Verse 22, notice this. Flee also youthful lusts. He's in his late 40s. Flee also youthful us, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, and peace with them that, are of, that call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strives. He keeps talking doctrine, 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 doctrine. Uh, well, chapter 3, verse 13. Let me go ahead and go through a few more of these. There's only two more I'll show you. Chapter 3, verse 13. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. False teachers. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. He's talking about doctrine. Doctrine is the only thing. Right doctrine is the only thing that can protect you from false teachers. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now folks, if you're wise unto salvation through the knowledge of the word, you're not going to be pulled into error. So what does he say next? Verse 16 that we all know. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto good works. Let me keep reading down into chapter 4. I charge thee therefore. The subject is doctrine. I charge thee therefore before God that in the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead, it is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. What's Paul's message to the elders of the church in Acts chapter 20? Stick with right doctrine. What's his message to the pastor of the church at Ephesus in both of the letters that he sends him a couple of years apart? Stick with right doctrine. What does Jesus say that the church has done well? They've stuck with right doctrine. They've stuck with right doctrine. Back to Revelation chapter 2. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Now, if you read this thing, and and if we took the, the letter is seven verses, which tells me Jesus doesn't have to take a long time to get his message across. Some people prophesy for days and days and days. Thus saith the Lord. And check your watch and the Lord's still talking 15 or 20 minutes later. Jesus gave a letter to the church at Ephesus. A pretty serious situation is occurring there in the church in seven verses. I've always known God to get to the point. What about you? Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Now, you need to understand something. If we read this in one setting, which is real easy to do, it sounds like, boy, you guys, it sounds like Jesus is saying to the church, boy, you guys have been 
tough on good doctrine. Man, have you done a great job. But there's a little problem. That's not what it says. The word somewhat is not in the Greek. He says, you've done a great job. You've labored. You've held your ground under fierce fighting and persecution. You've held your ground and kept a sound doctrine. Nevertheless, I have against you that you've left your first love. Let me read this to you from a couple other translations. Weiss translation says, but I have against you, your love, that earliest love you abandoned. Be remembering wherefore, this is on to verse 5, be remembering therefore from where you are fallen and have at once a change of mind in the early works performed directly or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place until you have a change of mind. The Jewish Bible says, but I have this against you. You have lost the love you had at first. Now, the the first love, the word first, literally is the word early. In other words, he's saying, the one thing that I have against you, it's not a little thing, it's a serious thing, is that you've abandoned your love. Now, why would Jesus be focusing on love where the church is concerned when it is the church of churches? Well, He's commended them because of doctrine, and there's a lot to pat him on the back about that. But remember, doctrine, sound doctrine, holding fast to the truth is not the great commandment. When Jesus was asked what's the greatest of the commandments, he answered to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus is saying you've left your earliest love, he's saying you don't love me like you used to, and you don't love each other like you used to either. One of the commentators, Charles um, William Barclay, uh, it wasn't Charles Barclay. His comments aren't necessarily helpful. Um, William Barclay, a well-known commentator, Bible commentator, said this, and I, I think it's real good. He said, the church at Ephesus, talking about the church at Ephesus, have abandoned their earliest love for Jesus and each other. The reason why is possibly because heresy hunting has taken place of compassion toward one another. He said, when orthodoxy has cost fellowship and love between the brethren, it's at too high a cost. Now, folks, if you go back and look at the letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus, it's full of exhortations about doctrine. It's full of exhortations about speaking the truth in love and so forth. Hold fast to the truth and and hold fast to that which is good and, and so forth. But there's a lot that he talks about love too. It seems that people uh, approach this subject as an either or proposition. You've got either loving Christians or you've got doctrinally strong Christians. It's not supposed to be either or. It's supposed to be both and. And Jesus does not say, please notice, Jesus does not say, you've been great at doctrine, so, you know, love, I'll give you a pass. But notice he doesn't say either, forget the doctrine and start walking in love. He doesn't tell them to abandon the truth. He tells them that they need to go back to what they were. Now, what do we know about where they started? What was the condition? And remember, this is some 40... To 40 to 42 years later, after the letter to, in Revelation, is about 40 to 42 years after the church was started. What was the condition of the church when it started? Well, nobody was saved. Paul started from scratch. Nobody was saved. And you remember in Acts chapter 19, maybe we ought to go back and look at that, or I will. Turn if you will, or if you want to, to Acts chapter 19. If not, I'll just read it for you. But remember how that the church had been going for a while, several years in fact, before it really took off. Doesn't mean people weren't getting saved. 
Doesn't mean good things weren't happening. Paul is disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus for two years. All of Asia is being evangelized. Verse 11, God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, folks, you need to understand the word special means unusual, out of the ordinary. When you have to start categorizing miracles as ordinary and extraordinary miracles, you're doing something pretty good. And it tells us what some of those unusual miracles were. And I want to point this out because I want you to get the picture of what the, what the condition was in the church of Ephesus and the door that God opened that Paul said was an effectual door. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. Notice what this does not say. It does not say Paul started selling cloths. It does not say that Paul originated this at all. This is kind of like a woman with the issue of blood thing. She comes in the press behind in Mark chapter 5 and says, If I can just touch his garment, I shall be whole. She reaches out and touches, touches Jesus' garment, evaporates into the crowd because Jesus keeps moving forward and realizes suddenly that somebody touched him and power went out of him. So he stops and says, Who touched me? Why would the Son of God not know who touched him? This is not something that God has spoken to him about ahead of time. This is not something he has had a vision about. He's walking through the crowd. Just turns around every now and then, looks behind. See, where's she at? I know she's coming. Where is she? This is nothing like that. This is Jesus minding his own business on the way to Jairus' house. And somebody puts a demand on the power of the Tony. Somebody puts a, man, a demand on the anointing of God that he had and was walking with and that was available for anybody and everybody. And when he... When that demand is placed, he stops and says, who did this? Paul, as I said, was working as a tent maker during the daytime. What's happening is Paul's fame is spreading throughout these years of ministry. His fame is spreading and the miracles are so well known. The healings and so forth that are taking place are so well known that people that can't get to Paul or won't come to him or whatever else are going to his place of business and taking the handkerchiefs. Handkerchiefs, the word handkerchiefs means sweat rag. Apron doesn't mean kitchen apron like Donna Reed used to wear. Apron means blacksmith outfit. The leather thing that he puts over his clothes to keep himself from being burned by the fire and stuff like that. Paul's showing up for work saying, where's my apron? Where's my sweat rags? Why does this stuff start disappearing? Because people are finding out this was his. He used this. He's being seen as the, the one that holds the power in the name of Jesus. That's why the seven sons of Siva story has told us. They said, we adjure you by, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Paul's the one that is known and become famous for using the name of Jesus and the power that results. That's where these people started. Now, what happens? Well, the seven sons of Siva story takes place. Everybody sees that Paul is the one that is identified by the devil who is way beyond their power, the people's power, but identified by the devil as having the power in the name of Jesus. So what do they do? That's when they turn away from all the paganism. Verse 17, And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. In other words, the whole city hears them. Again, it's been estimated 250 to 500,000 people. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Well, let me, let me keep reading, and I'll tell you. And many that believed, that means the believers, the ones that were already in the family of God, many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts, that's occult rituals and fetishes and stuff, brought their books together and burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Four to eight million dollars depending on whose estimate you use. Verse 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. There was something that happened with these people that even though there was a great ministry experience, a great revival taking place, people are getting saved right and left. But something happened that took the emergency break off the church. 
New cars don't do it so much anymore. They prevent you from doing it. But those of you that have had older cars, you know how sometimes you get in your car and you put it in park or you take it out of park and put it in drive and you start driving away and something's not right and you realize, oh, the emergency brake's on. So you release the emergency brake and all of a sudden the car kind of lurches forward. It goes the way it's supposed to. That's what happened to this church. They're having great results. People are getting saved. They're having miracles. The name of Jesus is being used and, and miraculous results are occurring. But when the people come to realize the Jesus, the way the Paul preaches it, is what works. Not just when seven sons of rebel Jews start mix, trying to mix the name of Jesus with everything that they're already doing and everything they're already believing. That's when they turn their back on everything else except Jesus. And that's what causes the church to flourish. That's where they started. That's what they've fallen from. Now, the word fallen over in Revelation chapter 2, you can turn back with the Revelation, if you will. We're through in Acts now. The word fallen doesn't mean you've started to fall. It means a completed work. Jesus doesn't say, be careful, you're starting to slip. He says, you're already fallen. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Remember where you started. Like I said, folks, this is just maybe 40 years, 40 years later. Now, that brings up another point. This is beginning to be, at least, a new generation of believers between Acts chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 2. I have no doubt that the previous generation, the Acts 19 generation, who are now at very least parents with grown children, I have no doubt that they expected their children to follow them in the things of God in the same way, with the same dedication, the same commitment as they had for themselves. But here's the reality. Every generation, even within church, even within the church, Every single church, every individual church, but even as the church at large, every generation has to be evangelized. That doesn't mean every generation has to get themselves, or the church has to get every generation saved. We take that for granted. We would expect that to happen in Christian homes anyway. More children are saved by their, through the their testimony and the, the, uh, the prayers of their parents than any, any other way at the church. But I'm not talking about evangelized in the sense of getting saved. I mean evangelized in the sense of getting turned on to Jesus. It's so easy for children of Christian parents, committed Christian parents, to be thought of that they're going to be just as committed by default. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So parents, let me encourage you. Pray for your children. Pray for their eyes to be opened. Pray for them to see Jesus like you saw Jesus or even in a greater way. Because every generation needs that. It's very common, especially with successful churches, for the second generation to be defenders of what the first generation did rather than find the purpose of God for themselves. That may be what's happening here. So he said, remember from where you're fallen and repent, turn around, go back to loving me and loving, your, loving each other like you used to when you were delivered, when you knew you were delivered from the power of the devil. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. The first works. I'm sure there was a greater effort in evangelism because the people were freshly saved themselves and they knew what they'd been delivered from. And apparently what's going on at the present time in Revelation 2. Repent, therefore, and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. He is not saying, and I will condemn you to eternity in hell. He's saying the church will lose its influence and its power. Why? Because the source of a church's influence and the source of a church's power is not just sound doctrine. 
the source of a church's influence is its love. We want to hold fast to sound doctrine because we love God. Not instead of loving him. Then he says one other thing. But this thou hast, verse 6. But this one thing, he goes back to commending them. He said, but this one thing, I can count on out of you guys. That thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we, um, uh, it's late. Now, I don't want to take the time to really get into the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Jesus speaks of this to another church, and I'd, I'd rather deal with it in, in detail uh, with them rather than here. But let me just say this. The, uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was, well, notice, first of all, Jesus said, you hate this and so do I. A lot of people, you start talking about love, and boy, you could turn the service and talk about love, and we could have just a love fest and wind up hugging each other's neck and crying and, and repenting to each other and all this kind of stuff, and, and Pentecostals would think we'd really had church. But I don't want to take it that direction. I want you to see the importance of it. But I want you to realize something else, because I think this has a greater impact for the, the, the message for us as the church that we can glean from them and that is this a lot of people have the idea and and i'm not thinking about anybody in particular but you know there are some christians that are so syrupy sweet and love that they don't believe anything they don't do anything everything's just about love 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 we don't want in in um uh, we don't want to offend anybody we don't want to do anything we just want to love everybody that's not what jesus said the church is supposed to be Jesus didn't say he wants to love everybody. Jesus said he hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That means anybody that brings the doctrine of the Nicolaitans to the church, he's going to oppose, and he's commending the Ephesians for opposing them too. Now, what is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Very simply this. It comes from the, the, um, the guy in Acts chapter 6, one of the original seven deacons by the name of Nicholas. It says that he was a proselyte which means he was a converted Jew who converted to Christianity. First of all, he started pagan. Then he converted to to Judaism. Then he converted to Christianity. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was very simply this. It went back to the same attitude, the same idea that the Ephesians had before the seven sons of Siva's story impacted them. Anything and everything works together. Now, here's what you need to understand, folks. And that is in our present day, those that are commended are those that present themselves as tolerant. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was very simply tolerance. Anything's okay. You want to believe in the law of Moses? No problem. You want to offer incense to the idols? That's okay too. You want to pray in the name of Jesus? Great. We'll do it with you. That's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, because of that, because of the paganism and so forth, people, you've got professing Christians who are now involved in the sexual activities of the temple worship, the burning incense to false gods and all this kind of stuff. And the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is God sees us all and he loves us all. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 12. You need to understand what the Bible means when it says to hate something. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Now, I'm going to close with this. I see what time it is. I'm not going to take it any further. We'll talk about the rewards and clean up some of the letter to the, Ephesus, to the Ephesians, uh, the letter to Ephesus next time. But Romans chapter 12, it says, Let love be without dissimulation. The word dissimulation means hypocrisy. Don't be hypocritical in the way that you show your love. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. This word abhor is an interesting word because it means to hate and it means to loathe. But the root words, two root words that make up this word abhor means to be vocal about hating sin. In this case, sin. The word itself doesn't have anything to do with sin. But it means to be vocal or expressive about your hatred of sin. Now, 
Remember the church at Ephesus to the megachurch. You need to understand something. And this is something I don't think most people understand. It seems simple to me, but for goodness sakes, so many people just don't seem to get it. And that is this. Megachurches typically, not in every case, but typically give way to false doctrine. And many of the people, perhaps the ones that, you're, that you listen to, because they're big name, well-known, are allowing evil and wrong doctrine to enter in, whether it's something as simple as God is in control of everything or something as serious as, well, we don't offend the gays, so we just want to love everybody. Or anything in between. Typically, megachurches are attacked with wrong doctrine. Because if the enemy can get wrong doctrine into the believers, he doesn't care how big the church is, the church will lose any spiritual influence and power. And typically the reason why Christians want to be tolerant is because they want to love everybody. Folks, that's not what God calls love. That's not what Jesus calls love. Jesus said, you hate this idea of tolerance proposed and promoted by the Nicolaitans. And I hate it too. The truth is the truth and it's always the truth. The church should express our abhorrence, our loathing of evil by our separation from it. Not by our association with it. And that's part of the job of the church. And Jesus said so. It's part of holding fast to the truth. And remember, we're also commissioned to speak the truth in love. So it doesn't mean we're against anybody. But you can be against and hate the, the actions of somebody without hating the person. And the idea that the church cannot take a stand against sin... Because we might not come across as loving and accepting of everyone. Well, the church is not supposed to be accepting of everyone. The church is supposed to be resistant to and separated from, from fear. I'm, I'm sorry, separated from evil and sin. And show people the way out of it. Not come bring your sin and be part of us which is what the Nicolaitans were doing. Introducing sin into the church and, and look, at, look at what's happening in the body of Christ today. You've got gay believers trying to fight for God loves me just as much as he loves you. Well, you're right. He does. He loves you just as much as he loves me. That's why he sent Jesus to separate you and to deliver you from that vile sin that you're involved in. If the church stops calling sin, sin, that's where it loses its candlestick. It loses its influence. One of the, there are three things that Jesus said to every church. He said, I know the works of you because he wants every church to be a working church. Another thing that he said to each one of them is, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit say. Because he wants each church to be a listening church or a church that's sensitive to the word of the Holy Ghost. And the third thing that he said to each church was to him that overcometh. They offered different promises to each one. But he said to him that overcometh. And that's because he wants each church to be an overcoming church. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the power that's in the name of Jesus that sets us free from any and every evil thing. We thank you for your working by the Holy Ghost within us. But Father, perhaps most of all, I thank you for opening the eyes of our children. Manifest yourself to our children, to the next generation. In such a way that they've become more committed and more on fire than we ever were. 
Make yourself real to them, Lord. In supernatural ways and even spectacular, in spectacular or miraculous ways. Father, for our sakes, minister to our children. Cause them to see your goodness and your mercy. Open their eyes to the power that's available to them to overcome in life. Father, let us be a people like the church at Ephesus that holds fast to the truth and to right doctrine. But let us also be a people, Lord, that never lose our early love for you and for one another. Let us be as strong in love as we are in our faith. Thank you, Lord, for giving each one of us a heart of love for our fellow believer. Help each one of us, Father, to be mindful of the needs of others, even as we're mindful of our own needs. In Jesus' precious name. Let us be a church, Father, that you don't have any criticism of because we will speak the truth in love. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand together. Come on back and be with us tonight for prayer school at 5, five o'clock. Whatever time prayer school is, come join us for that. <laughs> and eating school is at 6, if you can join us for that too. There's no football on today, so you guys have no excuse. God bless you. Have a great day.